I am thrilled to introduce to you Rebecca Sebastian. She is a yoga therapist, a yoga studio owner, an apothecary owner, 20 plus years in the yoga teaching business, and she's the host of the podcast, Working in Yoga. Go check that one out. We're going to be having some really important conversations about teaching and not only the yoga space, but the Pilates space, the movement space. If you are dealing with bodies or just humans, this is a conversation that you really want to be listening into. All right, let's begin. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Stick around if you want to learn about the art and philosophy of beautiful movement mixed with evidence-based exercise science. We will be having tough and inspiring conversations with other coaches, experts, artists, and athletes. Our goal is to challenge myths, explore concepts, and engage in healthy debate as we dive deep with intrigue and curiosity. I'm your host, Hannah Deutscher. I've been teaching dance, Pilates, and yoga for over two decades. And what I've learned is that movement can be the joy that integrates us all together. When we can trust and express ourselves through our bodies, we are unlimited in our ability to change ourselves and our communities for the better. We, as movement teachers and coaches, have the power to help people experience this for themselves. Okay, everyone, let's dive in. Exchanging ideas and changing people's lives one session at a time. This is the Pilates Exchange. So a moment ago, I just told our audience a little bit about your background, Rebecca, and I'm just so excited to have you as part of this podcast because I think your voice is so important to add to the conversation. I would love to start off with just a brief little, like, tell me about how did you start yoga? What was your first class like? So I started yoga because I was born with hip dysplasia. For those who don't know what that is, it is the ball and socket joint of your hip are not connected when you're born. And as a baby, you don't have muscles to hold the ball and socket in place. A lot of people actually know this. Young baby girls and dogs get hip dysplasia a lot. So people be like, I've never heard it in people, but I know if my dog had it, right? So as a baby, because we don't have muscles built, you are braced. So I'm 45, right? I don't know if the tech is different. But I was essentially put in a giant plastic diaper as a baby. And at 19, I had horrible hip pain, just what you would consider to be chronic hip pain, right? So I was in college, I was going through college, and I was having trouble sitting through classes. And so I went to a doctor and a doctor said, oh, you'll have your hip replaced before you're 40. That's what happens to girls like you. And so, of course, 19-year-old me... and. It, terribly dramatic too. Like as my personality, I'm like crying, like chronic pain is my life. It's going to be horrible. And a friend of mine said, have you ever tried yoga? And so she went with me to my class. It was a yoga class. Unlike any yoga class you have ever experienced, it was 95 minutes. There was 35 minutes of asana yoga movement there was about 30 minutes of a Kriya or an alternate practice. So in that class, I learned walking meditation, breath work. I learned Nali, which is the saltwater bath in your nasal passages. And then there was 30 minutes of talking. It's a class that no one, the, like this class doesn't exist in our industry anymore. No, it um, doesn't. That's amazing. <laughs> it was the greatest yoga class I think I've ever been to. And at the time I didn't appreciate it, right? We all sat around in a group and it was all these college kids and they were just like, so how are you feeling? How's your heart feeling? How are you processing life? Right. It was amazing. I got chills. And, yeah. <laughs> like, and that was it for me. I mean, this was the 90s, right? So this was the mid 90s when I found it. And so yoga was definitely in a counterculture place versus now when it's very mainstream. And yeah, that was my first yoga class. And after college, I moved to London and I was in every yoga class I could find and came back and found this bizarre yoga studio that was 47 stairs up in a three-story building with no air conditioning random cats running through. And that was just, I mean, it was very counterculture, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. 
And that's how it just had me. It had me from day one. I am 45. My hips are both mine. I've not had a hip replacement. I've had two babies naturally. It Yoga helped me. And I came for pain, recovery, and relief. And that's why I was first there. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And at some point, you decided like, hey, I really like yoga to teaching yoga. And then I know that your background now is in also yoga therapy. Right? Yes. And actually, I didn't decide either of those things. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you didn't decide? <laughs> I am the most resistant yoga professional you will ever meet, ever. I knew um, like, that's why I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> so originally, when I started teaching yoga, I had a friend who ran, of all things, a theater. So they were doing local theater performances and they had theatrical classes and they were just opening up. And this was right like 2001, I think. So they said, we want to have yoga here as like an extra class for our theater. And it's going to be mostly actors and people who want to use yoga to help focus and calm down. They had a yoga teacher lined up. And the story goes that the yoga teacher walked into the room and said, oh, my God, this is the most yoga story ever, Hannah. And they said (laughs) (laughs) the vibes and the energy of the space weren't right, so they couldn't teach yoga there. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. That is the most yoga ever. (laughs) I know, right? So it's so us. It's terrible. (laughs) And so my friend called me up and said, hey, I know you practice yoga. Can you teach this class? And I was like, nope. I cannot. (laughs) And and this was a conversation we had probably five times going back and forth until this person's wife called me and his wife is a very close friend of mine and essentially flexed and was like, will you do it as a personal favor for me? And I was like, damn. Okay. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, so Rebecca, the, the, I love that about. Okay, so when you write your book, can you title it, please, "The Reluctant Yoga Teacher"? Because I love yes. that for you. <laughs> and, all right. You know what I think is so interesting is that you know because I know later you went through all sorts of different trainings and and stuff, and maybe that start is what changed your. I mean, there's many things that influence the way that you teach right now, but I love it that you are on maybe the fringes, right? Like I am a little bit, we're pushing for change. And because we're taking a look at sort of the, I don't know, the things that are going on in our spaces differently than what the, like the mainstream is doing. Am I right about that? I think so. I mean, now that you're saying that, I do think there's an element of, I have nothing to prove to anybody. I barely want to be here. Like, In the way that I can't quit this job because I do truly love being a yoga professional. I love all of the things that yoga bring has brought to my life. I will say this often and it's, I can't believe I've been in this job for so long. It's dumb that I've been here this long. (laughs) I mean, the, the story of a yoga therapist is actually really similar for me. I was a yoga teacher, and at the time when I trained to be a yoga therapist in 2010, I was also a single mother. And so it was me and my very, very young son. He was one year old. And so I frankly was just trying to figure out how to make more money per hour because I had to utilize my time. I didn't have 40 hours a week to work. And as you know, I mean, I'm sure Pilates is the same way. There's not 40 hours worth of work for us anyway. I mean, you teach 40 classes, you're just flat. You'd be, yeah, yeah. you couldn't do that. There's not that much work. So I was like, I just need to know how to make more money per hour. And so my thought was if I could charge money the way that a massage therapist charges money, I would be building a sustainable living. And that was in 2010 and now 2023 going into 2024 because I'm about to raise my prices again, but I'm about $150 an hour right now, which is wildly more than most massage therapists charge. So it did work. It took me a while to get there, but I didn't feel this like great call to share yoga with the world or anything. Like I was just trying to get paid better to be quite frank. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That honesty, you know, in the way that you're doing and also with the type of honesty and authenticity that you have draws 
people to you, (laughs) you know, like it's, I think that's a gift in itself, you know, and helping, you know, helping your clients. Do you, would you call it clients or patients? We call them clients. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Super interesting. Now, part of the conversation that I'd love to have with you, because I think I've also started in the yoga industry before Pilates and there is some stuff in there. (laughs) (laughs) So much stuff. You know, we don't have that kind of time. So much stuff. This is going to be a, the longest podcast ever. And so I'm I'm not talking about like what we don't need to do today, I think, unless it comes up. We don't need to tear down the entire industry unless we want to and then fire sure. it up. But what I'm noticing is that the the more time that I'm sort of on the fringes, what I'm looking back into is the things that have just been accepted by our movement industry altogether, whether it's yoga, Pilates and dance, you know, all of these things that we've accepted a sort of power dynamic, accepting of different ways that we've been cueing movements for a while and touch in the studios that I think is, is counter, I don't know if counterintuitive is the right way. I think it's the antithesis of what we should be doing as teachers. Correct me if I'm wrong or lend your opinion to it. I, as a teacher, I want to create a space where someone can experience movement in their own bodies. And I'm a guide for that, but I don't make them do anything. They get to do the thing. What do you think? I agree. I think consent in in all things movement oriented, and I've said this before, enthusiastic consent is something we look for. It doesn't matter if it's in a movement classroom or if you're moving in a fun way with someone outside a movement classroom enthusiastic consent as you take a walk, as you go bike riding. I think the thing that I like to deconstruct here is what people are actually consenting to when they walk into our spaces, right? So I'll speak from a yoga perspective of, are they consenting to your lecture on the environment? We love to lecture in yoga. We we love to be very morally superior, right? In all of our spaces, Are they consenting to your comments about their body? Are they consenting to, you know, the touch thing, I think, is an interesting, maybe, I mean, touch and consent are very intertwined, but also you could talk about, I could talk about touch alone for an hour, but words even, before we even talk about touch, words like, the fact is, if people are coming into our spaces to move to feel well, Our words should not make their heads and hearts sick. Yes. Just so their bodies can feel well. So uh, I had a yoga teacher a long time ago, and this was probably my most toxic yoga teacher. And I referenced being a single mom. And so I was married and my ex-husband left our relationship. And at that time, you know, it was an incredibly stressful time. I had a small child and I remember my yoga teacher coming up to me and patting me on the waist. And I've never, weight's never been something where I've thought about dieting or diet culture or anything like that. I've been lucky to be a very, you know, the slim side of average as far as body type goes. And she just patted me on the waist and she said, well, it looks like you've lost a little bit more than a ex-husband now. You look great. And I remember thinking to myself, because she commented, I dropped about 30 pounds very quickly during that time in my life. And if you're wondering what my recipe was for that, it was crying myself to sleep every night and being so poor because I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills that I was eating one hard boiled egg and half a cup of cottage cheese every day. And that was literally all I ate. It was very, I, I mean, I was trying to support me and my son on yoga which is a notoriously low-paid gig, right? Right, right. <laughs> like, Rebecca, there's another podcast that I did just recently because I had a, a an angry flip-out on someone that had made a comment about someone's, oh, like, I haven't seen you in a while. You look great. Knowing in the background, like, what I know about this person of similar situation, really, like, it was just a shitty time in this person's yeah. life. And that's what, you know, Skinny doesn't mean healthy. Skinny doesn't no. mean happy. Skin- yes. So I'm sorry that you went through that. And when that yoga teacher said that, did you feel like, could you say something back or was the power dynamic so? 
Definitely not. I mean, she was not only my teacher. So we all know power dynamics mean that that teacher position, that person, person of leader in the room is very likely not to be questioned. We were in a public space, right? So there were other people around when we had this exchange. So the public nature of our conversation meant like, I'm not going to call this person out who's literally in charge of all these things. I'm not going to tell her gee, that was crappy to say or whatever else, or gosh, don't you see, I felt very unseen by her. And I think that's something that's really important for us as the leaders in any movement space is that we are actually seeing our students. We're seeing their experiences. And I felt so unseen. And also I was working for her. She was my boss. Like, Oh, double. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 I think there's that layer where, unless you have a very conscientious teacher that is thinking about all of those biases that we have, that unknowingly we have them, right? That's the unconscious part of it. It's like, we've been fed certain ideas for a really long time. We got to unpack those as teachers. Sometimes it comes out, I think, and that was a pretty direct, awful thing to say, but I think sometimes it comes out in, this might be more Pilates than in yoga, who knows, but like, oh, this exercise will tone your arms. This one will do this for your body. And all of it has something to do with changing the shape of the person with the assumption that that shape will make them more happy. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. We have that in yoga too. We sell fitness in the yoga space, just like any other movement does partially because fitness is easier to sell, even if that's not actually what we're doing. And some yoga modalities, that is what they're doing. It is a very fitness style of yoga movement. But frankly, fitness is easier to sell. Now, what's interesting from a business perspective, what we have found in the last six months, the reason why people are coming into yoga spaces specifically, and movement spaces, wellness spaces in general, the underlying motivator has changed. My friend Nicole was telling me this the other day that it used to be people came to look good in a bikini. Now they're coming to us for their mental health, Mm. much more so, and stress management, much more so than they ever have been before. So their why, our students' why, is different. So they no longer want you to tell them how to get a beach body. They want us to tell them how our movement will help them sleep at night. Right. This is a lot of what I'm saying always in, in our like education program is finding out what is the person's motivator? What's their goal? And how can we support them reach that goal? And that may look different for every single person. So the words yeah. that we're choosing and the, the, the movement session that we're setting up should be in accordance to what they're trying to achieve. And mental health, I mean, gosh, we all need more of that. <laughs> like, yes. yes, true story. Mm. But we're not talking about in a way where this pose or this exercise will make you be healthy in your brain. We're not talking about giving medical advice here. We are talking about something totally different. This is like creating a a safe space. And we could talk about that word too, creating safe (laughs) spaces, but creating a space where there's freedom for that person to experience what it is that they're after not dictating the experience that they should be having. I I think Pilates is likely a whole lot like yoga, especially certain lineages of yoga. It's a very sort of dictatorial structure, right? Nobody questions the person in front of the room. That person is the person who has all the say and all the power and all the knowledge, right? But what we know based on moving bodies is not all bodies move the same and not everybody's motivator for being there with you on that day is the same. Of course not. I mean, people go to the grocery store for a thousand different reasons and they're just all selling food, right? So you assume they're all there because they're hungry, but maybe they're going on a Tuesday because that's what fits best in their schedule. Or maybe they're at that grocery store because it's the closest to their house. Like, Everybody has a thousand different reasons for what they're doing every day. We can't assume based on somebody coming into our space that the reason they want to get there is so they look good in a bikini. Yeah. Oh, yes. 
So what do we talk about when there's been more talk in general, and maybe this is this phrase we don't use anymore, I don't know. What does safe spaces mean for you? I think safe spaces are a myth in general. (laughs) I think we can talk about safer spaces. I think we can talk about brave spaces. Brave spaces is this sort of like cultural conversation that I'm interested in partially because safe spaces generally mean that everybody feels quote unquote safe in that space, that nobody's going to say anything that offends somebody or nobody's going to say anything that makes, you know, folks of color or people who are, you know, in the LGBTQ plus community uncomfortable. I think brave spaces are way more interesting, right? Where we're able to have conversations where people can talk about their lived experience within their bodies in a way that allows us to see and hold each other in our differences. And I love that concept. Like we can build movement spaces and wellness spaces that allow people to bring their whole self to the table. And that to me is the best. Like, I want you to come into my space, bringing all of you, all the messy, all the everything, all the, you know, I don't like my tummy. And also, you know, I have a hard time at home. And also, you know, I'm having this experience out in my life, like bring everything. What a fascinating concept. I I haven't heard it put like that. And that's really interesting. A brave space means more dialogue, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's what becomes really important is that we, again, in that idea that we need to see each other, the only way we can truly see the people in front of us is if we have conversations with them where we're actually listening, which sometimes feels funny, right? If we're supposed to be the people talking, like I say that all the time in my yoga classes, like I just talk a lot. That's my job is that I'm supposed to talk a lot to you all. (laughs) But we really want to have conversations with our students. I want to get to know them better. Sometimes the other day, I just happened to be lucky enough that it was like a weird, awkward class that I was teaching the day after a holiday. And somebody comes in, it was one person in the class. And I love one person classes. I don't get them often anymore, but every once in a while, you get to have that one person class. And so I was getting to know this student at my studio and he was telling me about all of the political action campaigns that he had worked on and how he was in Philadelphia when like the vote was coming out in 2020. And like, I was like, wait, what you did? What? And he's just, I'm like, what amazing life have you lived that I didn't even know. And you've been here this whole time. Yeah. 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 I agree with you. Totally. It's so much fun. I agree with you that I love, I look for those personal experiences with yeah. with them. And if it happens to be a one-person class that was supposed to be a group class, I'm in. I don't cancel yeah. that. I love, love connecting with people that way. And it is it being seen, respected, acknowledged, held space for, and having those conversations. Because when you know someone better, then they are part of that community also in a more authentic way, perhaps. I mean, and from... A business perspective, it's just frankly good business. I know every time that I happen to have a random class where there's one person in there and we get to move our bodies, but also dialogue in a way that in group classes, you don't get to dialogue. I know that person's with me to the end of time because it's not just business for them anymore. We know each other on a different level. It's just good business. That, and I think that's where the results also come in for them because the trust goes deeper with you as the leader of the movement. And when they can trust you and the directions that you're giving, then they trust themselves to be able to take maybe more risks if that's what it's about or trusting in their experience that if something is not feeling good, that they can come to you and say, Hey, Rebecca, what about this? Or what about this? And that I think is where those super magical moments are. Yeah. Trust is a really interesting thing to bring up because there is this trust level, like this initial trust that people have just to walk into our spaces. Like, I'm going to trust that you're not going to hurt me. I'm going to trust that I'm going to have a positive experience. And it's interesting how that works, right? So every time we interact with our students, we're adding a little bit more into what I call a trust cup, right? So they come in and it's halfway full this trust cup, everybody gets halfway. You walk into a grocery store, you walk into the mall, like 
half of a trust cup. And then our interactions either add to that trust or take trust away. So if somebody walks into our space and then immediately we comment on, say, how their body looks in a way that hurts their feelings, we've taken away from their trust cup. Right. And if we're adding positive experience, getting to know them, really getting to see the people who are there, then we're adding to that trust cup, which is good because it's good to connect with other people. That makes all of us live longer when we have deeper connections with people. And also it's great for business because we are likely to be their teacher for much longer if we're adding to their trust cup instead of taking away from it. Yes. I, that is such a great way of putting it. And it is that earning of trust over time. Yeah. Mm. Do we want to talk tactile cues? Do we want to go there? Sure. <laughs> Hit me. What we're we talking about. <laughs> when I started teaching, I felt underprepared and overwhelmed. I needed to learn how to plan my training so that it made sense, but I wasn't sure what was working and what wasn't. So many teacher training programs leave out the actual art and business of teaching. This is why we created Train the Trainers. Train the Trainers is designed to give you the tools you need to create a powerful learning environment for your students. Gain access to the vault of our collected knowledge where you can learn everything we have to teach you, whether you are a freelance teacher or a studio owner. Get constructive feedback on your teaching with actionable tools you can apply immediately. We can't wait to be part of your teaching journey and to help you grow in your business. Welcome to Train the Trainers. All right, so here's where I'm at. When I started, okay, I started, I mean, Ashtanga Yoga Baby. So that was, um, my first Ashtanga class was in 2000, um, changed my life. I was deeply in the Ashtanga community for very many years. And that's, that was my introduction to yoga. Ashtanga is a notorious for the types of physical cueing that happens. It's, it's, I will help you. It's not, I will help you. I will put you into this posture. Yes. <laughs> the most messed up cues I've ever had have been in Ashtanga yoga places. <laughs> exactly. Universally. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. So, but at that point I was 21 years old when I started that 20 or 21 it didn't ring any alarm bells at that point because I had already been a dancer. So we are physically, from a very young age, we are physically manipulated into the shapes that people want us to be in, whether that means pushing us down into splits or whatever it is, adults feel they have ownership over our bodies and they put us into different places. So when I started in the Ashtanga world, I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that some of the things that happen there are very fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) So fucked up. Oh my God. I remember the first time that I was like, oh, this is really weird. I was in a, I don't know if everyone is going to be familiar with this posture, but both legs behind the head posture. So basically for, for those of you not in yoga, So try to picture this. You're lying on your back and you have both legs that are behind your, the back of your neck, right? So you're just a very vulnerable position anyways, like weird. I don't know why we do it, but it it is the way it is. And it's kind of fun to do sometimes. The teacher, female teacher actually, sat on my pelvis. What was she thinking? (laughs) (laughs) I don't even, like to this day, that was the moment where I, and what did she say? She said something like, just, just breathe. Don't, uh, she said, which I had heard many times over, don't fight against me or you'll hurt yourself. (laughs) Oh man. So that was the first moment, but it was years later of my Ashanga journey where I was like, oh, that's weird. And then started (laughs) unpacking Yes. Maybe <laughs> since that <laughs> so and weird. It's so weird. And like after dance, I don't touch people. I haven't touched people in a long time. Only in maybe only in the context of a personal training. Maybe we'll do some tactile cue, depending on what that person needs and blah 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 blah. But it's very much about consent every single time, every single time that I'm touching a person. But 
there's whole methods that it's just a, it's ingrained it. It's ingrained in our teacher trainings, different teacher trainings. It's not just yoga. It's definitely in Pilates. It's a hundred percent in dance. What is your experience with this? I'm not the only one for sure. Oh goodness. No. I mean, so I think the only other yoga lineage that is as touch heavy as Ashtanga is Iyengar, which is what I am trained in. So (laughs) my original yoga training before I was a yoga therapist. So now I would say lineage wise, I am of the Shivananda lineage, which is definitely kinder, gentler version of a yoga lineage versus your Ashtanga or your Iyengar. But yeah, I mean, again, walking into that yoga studio space, you know, the 47 stairs up with the random cats, that was an Iyengar studio. And you just walked in and the woman who owned that space, I I remember because she was my first yoga trainer, said very clearly, you must touch everybody in the room. Otherwise, why would they come here versus watching a video? And this was like when Rodney Yee and his AMPM yoga video was really popular. Yep. Like we all watched the same videos in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yes. <laughs> and she said, you have to touch everybody. And so I remember walking in and just being like, okay, this is, I guess, what we do here. Nobody told me this was going to happen. Here's me like, like every new student right in the back of the room very far back and she starts touching people in the front and I'm just like it's like that Jaws music da-dum, 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 <laughs> as they get closer and closer and you're like I don't know what's going to happen it'll be fine it's fine <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh I'm, 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 Rebecca it's this it's the same thing like I was taught that also in my yoga yeah. teacher training you yes. must touch every single person I forgot yes. that that was literally a requirement in the in the uh, yoga teacher training And with their feet, I mean, that's the thing in the Iyengar tradition, like Iyengar teachers, we use every part of your body to sort of offer those manual assists, those, those physical cues. And I remember the first time I saw her put her foot on somebody's hip creaks in a pose called warrior two, Virabhadrasana two, where you're standing there and you have one leg bent, right? So one leg's the ideal is that we're at a 90 degree angle with the hip and the knee in the floor. And the other leg is extended behind you and you're standing very classic yoga pose. And she's got her toes in the hip crease of a student. And I'm like, wait, your feet are where? And also, she lived on a farm. I mean, I was like, this is like not sanitary. And also, ew. And what? And nobody flinched. Nobody said a word. It was just like what we did. Yeah. I mean, now can you imagine that happening? I mean, in yoga spaces, we're definitely having this conversation about touch and consent very heavily right now. And I will say... I stopped touching people years ago, I think 2012, 2013, because one thing I have noticed is that when you manually assist people or offer physical cues, what happens is your words become lazy. So we tend to rely on that touch to teach. And I realized I wanted to get better at my job. And that meant eliminating all of the crutches that I was using in my job. So first thing I did was I took my yoga mat away as a teacher so that I couldn't demo like I used to demo. So I had to use my words and then I stopped touching people. And then I had to really use my words. Like how can I tell somebody to do this thing that I used to physically put their bodies into Mm. in a way that didn't sound stupid, right? Because we also don't want to sound dumb in front of, you know, our groups of 20 people or 30 people. Right. So I stopped touching people and my students fought back. They were adamant that they wanted physical adjustments. And so each year, this is something I've done for decades or more now. Each year around Christmas time, I have my students give me feedback. I have a like little mini feedback form and I just say, hey, what have you loved about my teaching this year? What do you want more of? What do you miss? And then on New Year's, I open them all up so that I can start the new year off with all this feedback from my students to have me get better as a professional. What a beautiful idea. (laughs) 
it's fun. It was always so enjoyable because, you know, I mean, a lot of my students had been with me for a decade or more. I've been lucky enough to be teaching long enough to have students for a decade or more. And so you get all these lovely notes from them. Oh my gosh, we love you. You know, you're so funny or we love how weird you are or whatever. And then also they get the opportunity to tell me what they're looking for more of. And that first year that I stopped touching people, every one of those forms said, I miss physical adjustments. Everyone. Mm, Wow. And I went, that's interesting. So I kind of went with them and I had, I was lucky enough to have a good enough relationship where I was like, what's with this? Why do you all feel this way? And here's what they all said to me, which I feel like you're going to appreciate. They all said, how am I going to know if I'm doing it right? If you don't touch me to tell me that I'm doing it right. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We send messages. Yes. Yes. This has been my point for years now talking to people is like, it creates not only the power imbalance, but it creates this doubt in their minds that they are not doing it correctly. And it becomes an ego play because I see, I see teachers going around and they're like, move a pinky finger. Really? Was that necessary? Like, you know, it's like, it is an ego driven thing for the majority of them. For us Pilates teachers, we have very big equipment pieces. Sometimes that does get dangerous. I will always assist someone when I feel it's going to be an unsafe, not, not unsafe, but like so that they feel secure. But moving someone into a posture or a movement, it creates, I believe, and I'm so glad that you said it the way you did, it's that feeling that they're not doing it correct. It's not a support. It's a making them doubt themselves. Themselves Is that, yes, you're shaking your head <laughs> for yes. <laughs> very clearly my experience the entire time you know so I held fast to this not touching people for three or four years and then I brought it back with um, 2017 2018 we were having these conversations in the yoga space about what consent for touch would look like dynamically live within our classes like can this be done can consent be held in group class spaces in a way that everybody was safer than they were before. So I brought rocks in to my classes and I just carried like this big thing of river rocks. I live right on the Mississippi river. We have river rocks everywhere. So I had this big thing of river rocks and my intention was consent is an action. So if you want me to touch you, you have to take the rock and put it on your mat. And so that was the game, right? So if you want me to touch, if you want me to, if I see the opportunity where touch is going to be beneficial, you have to have this rock here. Right. And then we come over, I have a conversation. I say, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. Is it okay if I put my hand here? That's how that worked. And I had students even then saying I had one lady, Brenda was her name who would line the entire front of her yoga mat with river rock. She had like seven or eight of them. What's so, so interesting. Right. And so I was like, again, that's interesting behavior. I want to know more about why you feel that way. Because also simultaneously with this conversation about consent to touch in yoga spaces, we were talking about how humans do have an innate need to be touched. It is beneficial and therapeutic to be touched by other human beings. It's good for our nervous system, oxytocin, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I was like, oh, okay, so maybe she just really loves like that sort of interaction in her yoga classes. I don't feel that way. That is not where I need my touch, but other people might. So I go up to Brenda after class and I'm like, that's funny, Brenda, you had seven rocks on the front of your mat. She's like, how else am I going to know that I'm doing it right if you don't touch me? Every time, every time. So interesting. And and it brings up this whole idea because I I completely hundred percent agree. I mean that's just with the sciences that we need we need physical touch. But yeah. is it our space? Is it our profession to be able to touch people at that point? I know, you know, like I think massage massage therapists, yes. You know, physical yeah. therapists, yes. That's not my my uh, education. You know, so the question is like, what kind of service are we providing? 
as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and again, you're like, the science is clear. We do need physical touch, but is a movement space the appropriate place to fill that need? Yes. I don't know that it is. Exactly. Yeah. Yes to that question. It's super interesting. How about, maybe I put it this way. That is not a type of service or a space that I feel comfortable creating. With my trauma, with my personal history, I don't think that I can do people a service of doing it correctly. I don't know what correct look, looks like in that space. So that is another reason why I feel opting out of almost all physical assist for me has been a very good decision. Do you touch people in your Pilates space? So if it's a personal training, so if someone is working through something, I do have a few people with multiple sclerosis and stroke and Parkinson's, they are definitely more hands-on for the assist that they need. And it's also really good for their processes. We talk about it every single time though, what they need and what they don't need. In a group class, I do not touch because I'm not sure if, let's put it this way. Even though I know people for eight, 10 years or so, I think even in the, say, the experience of the one hour that we're together, even if someone came in and said, hey, can you help me with this? And I'd like more touch today. Touch that consent can change during the course of the class. Are you getting more tired? Are did I just trigger something? Or you or not even I'm triggering. You had some sort of memory about something else, and then that that dynamic changes. So I'm not a hundred percent sure that even when I ask, that person is going to be feeling safe enough to give their consent willingly. So I don't touch in a group class. That was a long answer for you. <laughs> no, I have an official policy. So in my studio, I own a yoga studio. And in my studio, I employ 10 people who are yoga professionals, who are yoga teachers. And my official policy is we don't touch in class. I better not catch you touching people. That is in my manual. No, thank you. There's just too much. And again, I understand. I actually have some yoga teachers on staff who are also massage therapists. And I'm like, you know what, here's, here's the deal. If you want to add touch to your class, that is a written description. That means that everybody understands what they're opting in for when they sign up for your class. You are having a very clear conversation with each and every person individually when they come in the door so they understand what's going to happen. And then you're giving them a way to opt out or tell you to go away. And I made it so much work that eventually she was like, never mind. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. (laughs) But I think that's a super interesting way of doing it, Rebecca. Like I think all of those things, because people need to know what they sign up for, right? Like I, I personally do not like to be in Shavasana and someone's like putting oils on my head and massaging my scalp. Like, I don't know what that is for me personally. I know that some people love that. It's just not me. And if I know at the beginning that that would be happening, then I could say, please don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) but but I need to know what to expect (laughs) I have been that person in a yoga space where somebody comes around to do like the head massage with the like oils and all that where here's me just laying there all of a sudden my eyes open up and I'm like no (laughs) like so loud like like ruining the vibe no don't touch me don't touch my hair I have texture to my hair do not touch my hair go Yes, like why? Why? Oh, yes, I feel all all of the things, all of that. Oh. But the amount of training I have had to have had over 23 years of teaching, right? To be able to just say no in the space, like that is most people don't have that ability at all. Like I used to joke sometimes that when I, I trained to be a yoga teacher, I did it so that I learned that I could come down and down dog when I wanted to rest. Like I right? spent <laughs> like before that training, I was like, well, I guess we're just here forever and my arms are shaking and you know, I've had a bad day and I just hate this thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I have in my, um, 
in my past. It's funny that you say that. Evan, it was only after I felt uh, a little bit more secure in my practice, in my, in my Ashtanga practice, and practicing Mysore, so where you, ha- you go at your own pace. And you're, you're going through the, let's say, the choreography, for those of you who are not familiar with Ashtanga, where there would be days where I'd just be like, hmm, sun salutation, that's it. All right, time to push Shavasana. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm going to lie here for 90 done. minutes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that we don't need to fight through all that. I mean, I think some of our clients probably get sick of hearing from us because we're constantly reiterating, if you don't want to do this exercise, skip it or do something that makes you feel good. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think it's very funny that those of us who are teaching adults have to remind other adults that they're adults and you can do whatever you want. Like you could literally get up and leave. Like in my classes, I have what's called choose your own adventure time. And it is the mark of halfway through my class. And so I'll give people a general option of three different yoga poses, right? So you can do downward facing dog, you can do child's pose, or you can do cat and cow, which is undulation of the spine on all fours. And essentially my goal in this break in our class is that what I'm really teaching is people's ability to be able to be in touch with their own bodies and respond with what they need. Like that's my job, right? Is for people to understand what their bodies need and then respond accordingly. And so the first few times I added this into my class, you know, everybody picked one of those three things and now it's just mayhem. Like, choose your own adventure time. <laughs> People are just doing whatever. And I'm like, this is the, to me, that is the sign of a good class is that there's this space carved out in it where people can answer the call of what their own body needs. That's so beautiful. And it brings me to maybe an idea of how I would be able to incorporate tactile cues better. If I were to ask them, you know, if they could choose what they needed from me rather than me telling them, you know, moving their bodies. Mm. Like if someone said to me, Hannah, it would be so great if you could help me stretch my leg right here. Can you hold my ankle? I'm in because that feels empowered to me. Yeah, that'd be, I mean, to have students that would have the languaging required and then you have the relationship with that student to be able to have them ask you for that sort of assistance, I think is beautiful. Like that's touch at its best. That hasn't happened, but I'm saying, how cool would it be? (laughs) It would be so cool. (laughs) Document the day, videotape it. But I I love this idea of choose your own adventure. We we incorporated a little bit different, but uh, yeah, it really gives that autonomy to people to choose, to get in touch with themselves, to feel well, what is it that I want right now? Yeah. Oh my gosh. More of that, please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, and that's that thing with, you know, the story of all the rocks and the physical adjustments is that I think over time, as you progress as a movement professional, what you do get really clear on is what you're actually doing here. And I think in the beginning you're teaching and you're teaching in a way that your teacher taught you to teach and you just go, okay, I'm just doing what she did or, okay, I'm doing what, you know, Joseph Pilates said, like, I'm just doing what he said. But eventually you kind of sit there and you go, okay, why am I actually here? Like, why, why do I find benefit out of this? Why do my students find benefit out of this? And I realized over time, the thing, the reason why I'm really here, what yoga particularly is really about is yoga is a liberation practice. And so how liberating, if I can offer people this opportunity to answer what their own body needs in the moment. And really what I'm teaching people is how to do that in my room so that they can go into life and do that. Ooh, ooh, yes. And then it becomes different. Then I teach differently. Then I teach with a different purpose. Then it's not to make people as sweaty as possible or as flexible as possible. Or like you said, being, you know, that pose with both feet behind your head. Like literally, I used to teach yoga to 90-year-olds. Guess how many of them cared if they could put their foot behind their head? Like none. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> they were like, can I get up and down off the floor? That's really important to them. Are my joints stable? None of them even cared if they could touch their toes. Imagine that. <laughs> what? That's not the end all be all. <laughs> but they were like, look, do I feel secure in my body? Do I feel comfortable moving around? Do I feel like I can do the things that I want to do in order to make my day part of the life that gets me excited to wake up every morning? Like, that's what I think all of us movement professionals have in common is that we can teach people how to move their bodies in a way that gets them excited to wake up and live. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't say it any better than what you just said. So I'm just going to leave it at that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thank you. <laughs> Peace. We're done. <laughs> Fixed it all. <laughs> <laughs> Only took us an hour. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, Rebecca, I really, really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me because I think it's, it's, we could learn so much from each other's methods. I think that there's so much great knowledge that's out there. There's great questions um, being asked in all these different spaces. And when we get together and sort of discuss, debate, question, I think that's really going to help all of us as a pressure, yeah. not just as teachers, but also our students. Yeah. Eventually we'll all be Feldenkrais teachers anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned at the beginning of our podcast that Rebecca has a podcast, um, Working in Yoga, which you need to go check out. Every different way to get a hold of Rebecca is definitely in the show notes. So you're going to go and give her a hi also on social media and let her know what you think. <laughs> she loves continuing conversations. I know that about Rebecca. I do. I do. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. A great cost-free way of supporting us and the podcast would be to give us a five-star rating. You can also look down into the show notes and grab any one of the free resources for teachers. I hope to see you next week on the Pilates Exchange. Happy teaching, everyone.